this week it feels like the entertainment world has finally woken up to something Irish people have known for decades now. Killian Murphy is one of the finest actors working in cinema today. His best actor Golden Globe for Oppenheimer is the latest highlight in a career that has seen him excel on screens big on small, big and small not to mention in the theatre where it all started for him with Enda Walsh uh, Korkadorka and a play called Disco Pigs. As of this very afternoon Killian Murphy can add a Screen Actors Guild Award nomination to his increasing collection of laurels. The Oscar nominations aren't out yet, but he remains by far, I think it's safe to say, the front runner. Joining us to take a look back at this fascinating career is Paul Whittington. Uh, Paul, I mentioned uh, Korkadorka there and Disco Pigs. Before mm. we even get into that, um, after the uh, after the, the Golden Globes, we all know about the possibility that we may never have seen him on stage as an actor, could have been as a musician. Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't fully aware of the extent to which he was committed to that, but he had a band with his brother um, uh, at Pawdy and another school friend called the, the, Sons, the Sons of Mr. Green Jeans. And uh, they were all set. And I think they actually got offered a record deal, but for various reasons. I think the brother was too young. Yeah, they, they they turned it down, and um, you know, like the rest is history. But we would have been denied. A Music's loss is is absolutely is acting's yeah, gain, absolutely. perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, it, and it, when he was taking his uh, or making his acceptance speech on Sunday mm. evening, it was very notable. Uh, and this is typical of the man. I think he hates doing interviews. Famously. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Uh, he didn't talk about himself at all. No. in his acceptance speech, he talked no. about Christopher Nolan a lot. Yeah, and his own wife and that sort of yeah. stuff. No, he's just not. I mean, if I, I watched uh, the, the Golden Globes for my sins, and you know, while all actors pretend to be modest, few are. And mm. but he really, that is the side he doesn't like. He's often said that, like he does interviews because he realizes he has to. There's a game to be played, but. Um, he just he he. It's something that he hates. Uh, it's a it's a necessary evil for him. Yeah, but yeah. it's often said that acting is the shy man's revenge, and I think yeah. Killian, Killian Murphy is a absolutely perfect absolutely, example yeah. of yeah. that. However, he might not have been so shy back in the back in his younger days. I think he's admitted to this himself. Um, to all starting back in the presentations, uh, brothers, wasn't it in Cork yeah. where he went to school, and he was involved. Not, not surprisingly. In theatre in the school at that stage, yeah, in 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 uh, fourth year, I think in 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 pres there, and um, yeah, and he he sh- according to his teacher, he showed a real aptitude for mm-hmm. it, and uh, as you say, uh, actors are very very often shy people, and being somebody else is you know the, the way around expression. Yeah. Um, he he was going, he was studying law, I think, and uh, which which I think his parents had been keen on him doing, uh, but he was more interested in, in Kirkadurka, as you say, and he he. Um, auditioned for Disco Pigs and uh, and Walsh saw uh, uh, something in it. That was a phenomenal production, yeah. phenomenally successful production, yeah. toured worldwide. I remember it was, it was touring for I think maybe four, five, six years. Yeah. Uh, at one yeah. period. Yeah. One and, time, and it opened a lot of doors for him. There was a film made of it, as as mm. no one remember, and. Um, uh, because of that, it was because of uh, Disco Pigs that, that that he started to get film work, sm- uh, small parts in Irish films first, and then in uh, twenty eight days later, the Danny Boyle um, uh, film, which he was young in, like he was only in his probably would have been in his mm. sort of mid twenties. And but he had, as people already people talk about his eyes all the time. It's probably very boring for him, but it's more this kind of presence that he has I've met him a few times and he just kind of there's this kind of still presence that he has and he's incredibly photogenic as well Mm. he's a kind of unknowability which yeah 
Which exactly. is a yeah. is a good thing when you want to play somebody else because you're constantly on noble as you. Yeah, absolutely. He he is, and he has. It, we were just saying before we started off here. He's somebody you never ever see act. Most mm. actors you see act at some no. point. You never see it with him. He manages to join himself or find in himself the the person he's playing, and that's it. We see it in Oppenheimer, but we've been seeing it for twenty odd years. Yeah, so you just see the character. You yeah, don't, you don't you don't see the actor. And um, where did Breakfast on Pluto come? This was quite an early uh, the, the adaptation of the Pat McKay yeah. novel yeah and if it, it, like if there was if Neil Jordan if there was ever a, a sign that this was somebody who could commit totally to a role I mean because it was hugely demanding role mm. um, you know he he played you know a a, a, a transgender woman in um, in 1970s Ireland and the borders mm. and uh, it, it was kind of a a sort of tragic story, but the character didn't see in some ways, but the character didn't see it like that and and sort of refused to countenance serious, serious, serious stuff like the IRA and so forth, mm. with whom she gets accidentally involved and ended up in London. And it, it, it was a bit of a kind of a like a passion play almost. But he was a, he was extraordinary in it. Yeah, I, we have a clip actually from Breakfast on Pluto. <laughs> He's explaining his name, Kitten, and how he would like to be called by that name, Kitten. Neil Jordan's adaptation, of course, of Patrick McCabe's novel, Breakfast on Pluto. Owen, Roo, Owen Rowe, rather, is the school dean who has to listen to the young Killian Murphy in this clip. But so, if you can think of anything that would help us to help you, well... Well, there is one thing, Father... Instead of PE, yeah. I could take home economics and needlework class. And you think that would help you uh, knuckle down and apply yourself? What's that, Patrick? Oh, and you can call me Kitten, Father. Kitten? Yes, Patrick Kitten Braden, after seeing Kitten. No, there was no Saint Kitten, Patrick. Oh, no, but there was a Saint Kachin, Father, and some have been known to call him, or was it a her, Kitten? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Kellyan Murphy as Kitten Brady. Yeah. Uh, named after Saint Kachin, of course, <laughs> in uh, uh, Breakfast on Pluto. Uh, Paul Whittington is with me in studio the scene we were looking at the wonderful career of Killian Murphy, a Golden Globe winner this week and I think great joy in the country mm. and all around the acting community for his his success in that regards. But there, that's a perfect example of what you're saying about you don't hear him acting. And you know, one of the things people often say, oh, he got the accent perfectly. You don't notice the accent because all you're seeing is the character. No, no you're not thinking about him, which is which which, which is how he would want it. Mm. Um, and uh, as I say, he has, he, he has done it time and again um, and the he, in his speech he mentioned obviously Christopher Nolan but Christopher Nolan was a really important person in his career because he hard to believe that he was cast he was auditioned for Batman actually Batman yeah uh, and he made a joke about the suit being a bit roomy because he's not like he's a slender person yes. he's not very big um, but uh, uh, and he, he said on Sunday thanks for sticking with me Christopher Nolan has used him again and again this, this is their sixth film together and even though the roles have not always been big they've been crucial like in Dunkirk for instance a brilliant portrayal of a shell-shocked soldier Yeah and and, and uh, Nolan didn't cast him as Batman no. but he did cast him It would have been in, interesting if you had Yeah actually. I actually yeah. think he would, he would Well make because it. as he showed later in Peaky Blinders you know uh, you know he, he can become 
something mm. yeah, very you know, dark. If, yeah, if, if he yeah. needs it, that's a different kind of darkness, I suppose, yes. from what, what, what Batman needs. He does play a wonderful character in Batman Scarecrow, Begins yeah. in the in the mm. Scarecrow character. Do you give us a sense of it's it's that kind of shape shifting that he's able to do, which he has to do within this character? Yeah, he's a, he's a psychiatrist in 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 Arkham Asylum, you know, which is full of. Um, bad people, including Joker, and um, he he he's very very quiet spoken and kind of twitchy, and you know as soon as you see him that something is amiss. And then it, it, through use of chemicals and this awful mask, he becomes Scarecrow, and he's re- he genuine. One of the most frightening things mm. in that film is him. The most frightening thing. Yeah, jo- Doctor Jonathan Crane is the is the is therapist by day yes, type of character. Lunatic by night, yeah. and then lunatic yeah. by night is Scarecrow, and here he is starting out as uh, Jonathan Crane interviewing or assessing the late Tom Wilkinson as, as the who's a big mob boss in yes, isn't he? Yeah, uh, yeah, Falcone, in, I think, Falcone yeah. in, in this particular scene and uh, Killian Murphy explains or shows him his <laughs> mask I already know what he'll say that we should kill you <sighs> ah, even he can't get me in here not in my town Would you like to see my mask? I use it in my experiments. I'm probably not very frightening to a guy like you, but these crazies, they can't stand it. So when did the nut take over the nut house? They scream and they cry. That's your day now. Well, he's not faking, not that one. I'll talk to the judge and see if I can get him moved to the secure wing at Arkham. I can't treat him here. I never want to know anybody who was treated by Dr. Jonathan no. Crane as played by Killian Murphy no, there no. in Batman Begins. And so quiet, so under mm. it. That's what was so good about it. You know? Yeah, and but that's his, that's yeah. his kind of hallmark, yeah. isn't it? That yeah. kind of, as you say, invisible acting. You, you don't necessarily, you don't necessarily see it. I was thinking about... Um, his role in The Wind That Shakes mm. the Barley, the, the Ken Loach film, all mm. about the, you know, the Civil War. And the, um, yeah. Basically, it's more about the treaty, I suppose, and the post-treaty period than it is about anything else. Um, it's one of the scenes that really sticks out for me, the final scene in that film, actually, between uh, Killian Murphy and his the fellow playing his brother, uh, Teddy, isn't it? Uh, Patrick Delaney, Patrick Delaney, who plays Teddy. Mm. It's, this, again, is an extraordinary performance. Yeah, it is, and uh, it, it's interesting because he he he's he's a medical student in the film, and he doesn't really want anything to do with mm. the, the troubles that are happening, and by circumstance he he's drawn into it, and then becomes a very dynamic member of a flying column. But again, um, just uh, y- you kind of see the film through his eyes, really, mm. because he he is the waver, the vacillator. Yeah, he's and, the anti treaty part the of an- the family, and, and but but through him you can imagine what you might have done. Yourself mm. and he he's terrific in in that film, which was a very important film here at the time. Yeah, and and that scene, the the, the scenes between himself and Porrick yeah. Delaney as the brother, they yeah. really give you a sense of what civil war is all Absolutely. about. Let let's have a listen to one of them. In, in fact, Porrick Delaney and Killian Murphy as Teddy and Damien, and their total disagreement mm. over the treaty in Ken Loach's The Wind the Chicks of Barley. And I should uh, warn you before you listen to this a uh, bit of language in the midst of it all. Look, Teddy, there's one in four people out of work in this country, right? I have seen children and and families starving. Do we expect them to head off to New York and London like before? Is that that what we fought for? We didn't fight for this, Damien. Look, it's too late. You're not going to convince me. You've always been a dreamer, Damien. I am not a dreamer. I am a realist, Teddy. 
Hmm? I need you with me on this, Damien. I swear we'll tear up the treaty once we're strong enough, but I need you to to be with me on this year. Then you're my... I, just give me time. Give this give this a chance. It's too late, Teddy. You can't see it, boy. You really can't see it. John Bull has got his hand on your pants and his fist on your bollocks no, and you can't see it. That's not it, Damien. This it's not treaty, like that. Teddy, this treaty. This treaty makes you a servant of the British Empire. You have wrapped yourself in the fucking Union Jack. The butcher's apron, boy. That's uh, Killian Murphy mm. as Damien, Porrick Dianney as Teddy Brothers in uh, The Wind, the Chicks, the Barley, the Kendall. Don't hear his Cork accent too often, actually. You know, you yeah, don't. that was full but, on. But yeah. I was saying, even as we're listening to that, you know, one of the things, in, yeah. and you see it sometimes in Ken Loach movies, obviously there's this improvised nature yeah. to the dialogue. And part of that are improvised. It has that, or certainly the, the, it has that feel of them. But you never hear no. the, the kind of, you never hear the improvising. No, there's no joins, there's no break. Yeah. He, he either is the person or he's, he's always the person and that's it. Yeah. I suppose his uh, coming into a more kind of centre or public consciousness, a more popular type of consciousness, is Peaky Blinders did that for him more recently. Yeah, absolutely. The, the hugely successful TV series that inspired some unfortunate fashion trends and so forth. But he actually, mm. um, uh, Stephen Knight, the director, wanted Jason Statham for that uh, role, believe it or not, if you can mm. imagine two more different mm. performers. And... Um, he 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 couldn't see he couldn't see past um uh, Killian Murphy's kind of you know size and the fact that he doesn't look like he's gonna and um but uh they yeah because you you wouldn't necessarily think as that the, the no. Thomas Shelby is not a man to be messed with let's face it in Peaky Blinders but you wouldn't necessarily see that kind of undertow of violence the unknowability is there all the time in his performances but the undertow the threat that's there in this part is quite extraordinary yeah the threat but 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 but, but, but you watch him become that you watch it happen that's the difference he mm. he sent it apparently he sent an email to before he was cast to uh, Stephen Knight saying remember I am an actor now I don't know what he was referring to about it but like he is and he's he's compelling he's all the more it's a bit like I don't know Al Pacino in, in the Godfather films, you don't think of him as a violent person. He's very quiet and he's kind of you know, in nice suits, but 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 he really is. And he, he was amazing in it. And it was a kind of a risk for him to go into television at that point. But it, it really paid off. It, cert- it certainly did. And as you say, um, maybe the quieter is the more violent yeah. in, in, in many ways. Here's a scene from Peaky Blinders. Um, Thomas Shelby, Killian Murphy character, the family boss, is giving warning to his foot soldiers about his wedding day. He doesn't want any fighting. Now, if you thought there was a bit of language in the um, <laughs> Wind the Shakes the Barley, be prepared for a lot more language in this particular clip. Nevertheless, John, despite the bad blood, I'll have none of it on my carpet. Now, for Grace's sake, nothing will go wrong. Those bastards out there on our family. And if you fuckers do anything to embarrass her, your kin, your cousins, your horses, your fucking kids. You do anything Tom. to what? What about Snar? Yeah, they're women of sports, I'll say that. No. 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 No cocaine. No cocaine. No sports. No telling fortunes. No racing. No fucking sucking petrol out of their fucking cars. And you, Charlie! Stop spinning yarns about me, eh? Killian Murphy as Thomas Shelby there in um, in, 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 in Peaky Blinders. Finally, Paul, um, uh, the, the, the Oppenheimer, the Oppenheimer situation. Mm. This this is a long film. It's a long film to watch. And Killian Murphy is 
on screen yeah. for practically the whole thing yeah. across different time frames. Yeah. And 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 very, he doesn't do method acting. He very he, he he didn't try and do an impersonation of somebody. He just he, he he wanted to get the look of him, and he 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 lost quite a good deal of weight without making a fuss about it to get that kind of pinched and angular look. And you you just you just get the sense of this awful intensity of Robert Oppenheimer and how how draining it must have been to have to be him. And he really does. He he is for me. He is the reason to watch that film. He, I, I I liked the film. I I had the odd problem with it, but he's exceptional in it. Let's have a listen. Let's have a listen to him in in action in Oppenheimer. And here he is with Matt Damon, and uh, he's kind of laying out what it is he thinks as a scientist he can offer this particular project. Nevertheless, John, why don't you have a Nobel Prize? Why aren't you a general? They're making me one for this. Perhaps I'll have the same luck. Nobel Prize for making a bomb. Alfred Nobel invented dynamite. So how would you proceed? You're talking about turning theory into a practical weapon system faster than the Nazis. Who have a 12-month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? Our fast neutron research took six months. The man they've undoubtedly put in charge will have made that leap instantly. Who do you think they put in charge? Werner Heisenberg. He's the most intuitive understanding of atomic structure I've ever seen. You know his work. I know him, just like I know Walter Both of von Weizsäcker, or Diebner. In a straight race, the Germans win. We've got one hope, which is anti-Semitism. That's Killian Murphy and Matt Damon there in a scene from Oppenheimer, the performance that won Killian Murphy the Golden Globe, which is one of the many reasons if we needed one to talk about his career with Paul Whittington mm. this evening. And you hear him there opposite Matt Damon. I mean, it's it's, it's no big shakes. He's, he's been opposite big stars before. Mm. But you hear the level at which he's performing now in, on the Hollywood screen. It's right up there with the A-listers. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, <clears throat> you know, if he's proved it before, but at the centre of a huge film like this, he, he, he is able to absolutely hold his own. And in fact, Matt Damon, um, uh, you could see at the at the Globes there, they know each other and they are collaborating on a, on a new mm. Claire Keegan adaptation together. So it's all it's all uh, happening for him. And, and in terms of awards, I mean, I would imagine that he's now the front runner in terms of the best actor. Oscars probably between him and Paul Giamatti, unless things change in terms of the runners and riders, but I think he stands a very good chance, and it will be wonderful to see him. Ah, uh, yeah, I think I think everybody would be delighted for that. Um, but he has his his Screen Actors Guild nomination. He has his Golden Globe under his belt, and he'll know now. I I would say if he wins the Oscar, he'll be up there and getting lipstick on his nose quite happily. <laughs> and I think we'll all <coughs> like to see the lipstick on his nose once more. Uh, that is uh, Paul Whittington speaking to us about the actor Killian Murphy, and congratulations to him indeed on all his success and the. Oscar buzz. We should also mention, of course, Poor Things, the new film from Yorgos Lanthimos, which did pretty well at the Golden Globes too, winning Best Picture, Best Actress for Emma Stone in a musical or comedy. It'll be released in Ireland tomorrow and it will be one of our films in our review spots tomorrow night, tomorrow night here on Arena. Landmark Productions, the brainchild of theatre producer Anne Clark, is celebrating its 20th birthday this year. Landmark's first production was David Hare's Skylight, performed in January 2004 at the Project Arts Centre. And Landmark are back in the project to mark this anniversary with a production of Samuel Beckett's Crap's Last Tape. Fittingly, 
It too revolves around a birthday. Stephen Ray plays the 69-year-old failed lover and writer Crap, who was marking his birthday by listening back to a series of tapes which he recorded on previous birthdays. The play is directed by the outgoing artistic director of the Royal Court Theatre in London, Vicky Featherstone. The Royal Court was in fact the venue for the first production of Crap's last tape in October 1958. Delighted to be joined this evening by Vicky, who's fresh out of rehearsals or possibly still in the middle of rehearsals as she's speaking to me now. Um, it, it really is a wonderful setup that Beckett gives us here, Vicky, the idea of a 69-year-old man who has bothered to make recordings all through his life on his birthdays to tell us how he feels. It's, it's a wonderful conceit. Yes, it's it's magical. I mean, Beckett is magical, isn't he? You know, the idea that we're watching somebody listening to their former life and through that we learn all about him and he learns about himself as well. Uh, uh, it often struck me that a clever actor would probably make some of those recordings along the way so that <laughs> so that when the time comes that he is 69, he can say, oh, look, I have some recordings from the past that I did. Stephen Ray is a very clever actor. He really is. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, Stephen Ray is an incredibly humble man, as you know, mm. um, but he's always wanted to do this play. And he, of course, worked with Beckett at the Royal Court um, in Endgame. Um, so, you know, has all these incredible stories of working with Beckett, but he always wanted to do this play. So, yes, 12 years ago, um, he recorded himself doing the 39-year-old version. And there's something really incredible listening to them in rehearsals and hopefully in performance when the audience are there, seeing the older person actually authentically listening to the younger version of themselves. When he told you that, when did he tell you that he had these tapes and how significant was that in your decision to to actually direct this play? Because you wouldn't be known for directing plays from the, the old playwrights, the fellas way back in the past. <laughs> Well, no. I mean, Stephen and I first met when I did Cypress Avenue by David Ireland, which is the play that Stephen was masterful in about mm. the, the sort of Belfast loyalist who kills his own granddaughter. Um, and he, we talked then about wanting to work together again. And Stephen said, you know, one day when I'm old enough, I always want to do Crap's Last Tape. And that's when he told me that he'd done the tapes. So it sort of lodged firmly in my mind. I thought, oh, my God, I really hope he asks me to do it. And we'd enjoyed working together. Um, but it was the brilliant Anne Clark, who's the hero of of all theatre and Irish theatre in particular, um, who, who who approached Stephen and said that she'd love him to do it for her, her 20th anniversary production. Um, and he remembered that he'd spoken to me about it. So I'm very, I'm, I'm the last cog in the wheel, but I feel very lucky to be here. <laughs> At what point did you listen to those recordings from 12 years ago uh, and hear what Stephen had done back then? Um, well, probably just before we started rehearsals. So Stephen said that he'd done the tapes and that he would, he really wanted to use them, but he was also nervous about listening to them because he hadn't heard them either. Um, and so, um, so he, he listened to them separately um, and he sort of gave me the caveat that if they don't work we can re-record but he really hoped that they did um, so yes it was before we started rehearsals um, and we started rehearsals back in October um, so just sort of around then and of course they're extraordinary mm. and you know there's a, he has an amazing instinct anyway Stephen Ray is an actor doesn't he and you know he knows the play very well so just the sort of truthfulness of what he did then just fits so brilliantly with what we're doing 
Uh, well, let's listen. You very kindly gave us uh, one of those recordings that very Stephen bad. Ray made back back 12 years ago. And it's the very first um, piece of tape that the 69-year-old cap, uh, crap living, sitting on stage actually listens to. And yeah. here is Stephen Ray then, as crap, looking back on his 39th birthday, the recording of that particular tape. 39 today. Sound as a bell. Apart from my old weakness. And intellectually, I have now every reason to suspect at the crest of the wave, or thereabouts. Celebrated the awful occasion, as in recent years, quietly at the wine house. Not a soul. Sat before the fire with closed eyes, separating the grain from the husks. Jotted down a few notes on the back of an envelope. Good to be back in my den, in my old rags. <laughs> Stephen Ray there as crap, as the 39-year-old crap. That was a recording that Stephen Ray made himself 12 years ago and it will now be used in the upcoming production of Crap's Last Tape with Stephen Ray as the on-stage crap listening back to his, his, his younger self and the production for Landmark has been directed by Vicky Featherstone who's with me this evening. Um, the one particular phrase just jumps out at me when I listen to that and it's sound as a bell which is a very simple phrase but the way Stephen Ray says that he literally eats and relishes every word of that phrase Yeah, absolutely I mean I think, you know every word every I mean Stephen loves language so much um, and so many amazing Irish actors do and just revel in language um, and he just he sort of plays with it all and I think one of the things that he talks about a lot about what, what Beckett said to him and is also very clear in Beckett's work is often it's about the rhythm not the meaning and so it's about often exploring the rhythm and the meaning coming through the rhythm of that like sort of music um, and and that's definitely something that Stephen plays with you know there's a bit at the end the bit when he's actually speaking and recording his tape himself, you know, when he says, it's interesting you say sound as a bell, where he says, be again, be again. And it sort of, his voice sounds like the tolling of the bell ah, um, right. as he's approaching the end of his life. Yeah. So he's really playful around with the language. I wondered, you know, you talked about how modest Stephen Ray is. Um, you said you listened to the tapes separately at first. There must have been a point where you had to sit down and listen to them with him. What was it like <laughs> sitting beside him? I can only imagine the grimaces that were going on on his face as he listened with you. Oh my goodness me! Yeah, he was like a sort of he was like a sort of um, a little boy squirming, you know, in sort of Sunday school, something like that, like being forced to sort of like be sit sit still and listen. So we listened to them um, all together, um, the sort of team on the first day of rehearsals in October. Um, and of course, they're mind blowing and they're beautiful, and he does them so brilliantly. But yes, the the facial grimaces were quite extreme. I had to sort of look away so that I could concentrate on listening and hearing what he'd actually done. Um, but but he's very clear about um you know he he he's it's a very brave thing to do to ha- you know have to listen to yourself on stage mm. every night um and you know sort of to make peace with that and not to wish that you'd done something differently or hear something differently um so it's a really sort of mature process to be able to do that which he's he's done brilliantly one of the one of the challenges uh, particularly in craps last tape if you think of it a man sitting on stage listening to recordings of himself from earlier on or from birthdays of previous years 
sounds like a very static and very <laughs> untheatrical type of piece. But thanks to particularly bananas, um, <laughs> Beckett, Beckett brings it into a theatrical realisation because he, he, I think it was a radio play that actually uh, inspired him initially. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that Beck is really interested in in this are the sort of are the sort of paradoxes or the contradictions. So he's really interested in in listening, which is like still and then movement and noise. So it sort of goes between these two things of kind of, as we know, the sort of slapstick with the bananas or the tapes being thrown all over the floor, really sort of clattering things that are quite sort of shocking in this very stark environment. And then real silence or real stillness while he's listening to himself with the tapes. Um, and he, he, you know, that's part of the kind of rhythm. And that's the thing that makes it very theatrical, I think, because you sort of it's the same with Not I, you know, Beckett's play, which mm. is the mouth. You sort of lose sense of time and place. He does something very clever to you. You don't know how long you've really been there watching something. I mean, you know, Crapstar's tape is only 50 minutes long. Um, and it feels like it's sort of gone in a second and you've spent a whole life with him as well. So it really plays with the sort of concept of time and space so brilliantly. And, and, really theatrical. Yeah, one of the things that I know you've said about, because as, as I've said, you're known pretty much in, with your work in the Royal Court and with your work with the National Theatre of Scotland for new plays and working with new playwrights, yeah. which was the case with Cypress Avenue and David Ireland, where Stephen, as you say, yeah. played the, this loyalist Eric who's consumed by sectarian hatred and <laughs> believes that his five-week-old granddaughter is Jerry Adams. To what extent yeah. do you see the plays of people like David Ireland, how they have, how have they come out of the plays of the great Samuel Beckett? Yeah, I mean, that's such a brilliant question. And especially, you know, having been artistic director of the Royal Court, I think all great playwrights are part of a tradition, even if they don't honour it in some way. You know, they, it's very rare that you get a writer who hasn't read any theatre, a playwright, hasn't read any theatre, only been to the theatre, that just kind of emerge and write a play. So, you know, they've absorbed all these different styles and these different forms. And, of course, Beckett is the playwright that changed the form so much from a sort of five-act conventional structure, um, the sort of oh, the sort of George Bernard Shaw's and Oscar Wilde's and all those plays that existed. And he sort of came in and did something so entirely different, um, something that you couldn't really imagine before in terms of playing with theatre and what theatre was. And I think that's influenced, that's gone on, you know, in cycles to influence all of those other other writers that have come come after him, really with a bravery and a fearlessness. And I think David Ireland is a is an incredibly fearless writer. Um, he knows that, you know, to put something like that on stage, the sort of shock of of Eric killing that baby and the sort of visceral experience of the whole audience witnessing that together is so enormous, really. Um, and I think, yeah, Beckett in the same way, the fact that we all witness this. I, f I always find theatre is about a congregation witnessing something together and you can't unwitness something that you felt together. Mm. So you are changed by every performance. It's a really extraordinary art form, really. And I suppose it would be safe to say, though, now that Beckett is part of the canon in the way that he certainly wasn't when he was challenging the canon with his plays back in the, in the, in the middle of the 20th century, were you wary about going to the older, the playwright who wouldn't be in the room with you in that way, <laughs> with a new playwright? 
Um, I was because normally, you know, I would always go, what are you trying to do here? And even if the playwrights are trying to be interesting and ambiguous and they say, I don't know, I just wrote it, I can still sort of see in their eyes whether they are approving or not approving. And, you know, you end up in a sort of bigger dialogue with the, with a living writer. Um, but I very much wanted I very I very much approached this as if it hadn't been done before because I think this is one of those parts for an actor like sort of King Lear or the or some of the other great Irish plays those great parts um for the actors that they can feel intimidated by what's been gone before and they can be, it's a sort of a comparison and I was like we just have to sit and try and un- investigate and interrogate this script like it's never been done before so that the group of people that are here now are responding to what it is that we're reading on the page and there's this brilliant book which is um a sort of works book a textbook from um Beckett's notebook so the notes in the notebook are so meticulous and he asks so many questions of his own text that it's like having him in the room, that you are you know that he hasn't written something which he immediately knows the answer to, that he's investigating and trying to reach the truth of it too. Um, and it sort of gave us license to do the same thing, not to be literal in how we were putting it on stage, but to really think about it um, and to really, really investigate it. And that's what you do with a, with a living writer. So, And, of course, Stephen then would bring in all of the sort of colour and, and the sort of joy of actually having spent time with Beckett and all of those stories, um, which are incredible, you know, the sort yeah. of lineage of that. He, he talks about going to a party after the first night of Endgame where Beckett and Pinter are sort of playing the piano and singing and Stephen's standing like as a young actor in the corner smoking. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and was it Patrick McGee? Was Patrick McGee in the production of Endgame that Stephen did? Patrick McGee, who played the original crap. That's right. He was in that. Yeah. So, so, so Stephen worked with him then in that, and directed I, by Beckett. I wonder, did Stephen had he had he any words of wisdom from Patrick McGee, who created that part that he that he brings with him into the rehearsal room now? I think um, I think the the thing that he sort of feels about Patrick McGee is the sort of power of the man and the voice rather than the sort of pearls of wisdom. He has pearls of wisdom from Beckett mm. because Beckett feels like he was a guru to them all. But I think Patrick McGee, he, he sort of observed him and the way that he was as this incredibly sort of um, um, sort of strong actor. And I think Stephen has really admired that and, and yeah, really looks up to Patrick McGee. So it's a challenge, isn't it, with mm. someone like that to then do the part that he created and was written for him. Um, I'm wondering too what your experience with, for example, the Royal Theatre, the, not the, the National Theatre of Scotland, beg your pardon, what that, what that experience brings to doing a traditional, what now could be considered a traditional play by Samuel Beckett, because the the National Theatre of Scotland was a theatre famously without walls. There was no yeah. building. Um, what what has that experience brought? What of that do you bring to this more, I suppose, traditional form? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I mean it was very interesting going to start a national theatre in Scotland in two thousand and six. Um, where there had been nothing before and starting it from scratch and looking at, you know, Ireland has one of the oldest national theatres. And, and as Stephen always reminds me, you know, there was a national theatre in Ireland before there was a nation mm-hmm. um, and, and, how, and how kind of vital that was in terms of the formation of the nation and culture and art and the politics of that being at the centre of it. Um, I think what I, what I got from the National Theatre of Scotland was um, a, a real uh, desire to connect with audiences 
um, because it because it doesn't have a building. It was really about what's the right work to take to the right audience and where should that be, um, and that that should always be a really sort of dynamic thing. And I think that's fed into all the work um, that I've done since, and also a real respect for a nation like Scotland in terms of having to hold on to. Um, uh, the sort of fragile and the vulnerable pieces of art that may not have been passed down and passed forward and then how do you support artists looking forward into the future to be able to kind of tell the stories of now so I think all of those things are sort of tied together and then for me you know doing Beckett in Dublin for Landmark's 20th anniversary with all the amazing work that Anne has done and has developed and the artists that have developed and and I'm so influenced by those amazing mm. Irish writers and artists you know Enda Walsh um, amazing people, Killian, of course, and Eileen Walsh. Um, so yeah, it feels like that all these circles just kind of keep repeating themselves, don't well, they? Really. We're and there lucky. you go. You, you've you've just uh, you've been the artistic director of the Royal Court, which certainly has a building since two thousand and thirteen. Uh, but you've decided to move on. I do, I hear a very yeah. I hear a big love of Ireland in there and a big love of Irish theatre. Oh my God! You're going to give me a job. I no, I'm going to ask it. you what money you're looking for. <laughs> what money yeah. are you looking for? Well, what would I, you like to do I'm, here? Um, well, I've been, I've you know been running buildings or theatres since I was 27, and I'm 56 now. So I've been constantly an artistic director, um, and so the context of baking work is always really interesting to me. But um, I, I think there's a real. I, th- I think there's a real hunger for, we know this, but a real hunger for brilliant storytelling and there's so many brilliant artists in Ireland. So I would love to come and, and, and you know, maybe work, make a new play, do a new play um, with, a, with a writer, with an Irish writer and kind of develop that, create a sort of debut. I'd love to do something like that. Um, yeah, definitely. I'll well, have to ask somebody. I have to try and do something. There you go. Pitch made <laughs> by Vicky. I know. Thank you. Thanks for that. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Lovely to speak with you this evening, Vicky, and best of luck with the production. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was great. That's Vicky Featherston there and Crap's Last Tip, written by Samuel Beckett, directed by Vicky Featherston, starring Stephen Ray, will be at the Project Arts Centre from January the 11th through until February the 3rd. Full information on projectartscentre.ie. Hard to believe that Sean Hewitt only published his first, his award-winning first poetry collection, Tongues of Fire, in 2021. Since then, he has also produced an acclaimed and indeed award-winning memoir, All Down Darkness Wide. And I spoke to him on the programme just last October about 300,000 Kisses, Tales of Queer Love from the Ancient World, a collection of 40 love stories, poems, songs and spells, which Sean had translated. Now he's back with a second collection called Rapture's Road, set in a dream version of Phoenix, the Phoenix Park in Dublin. Delighted that Sean Hewitt is with me in, in studio this evening. And indeed, you can watch us if you are so inclined on our live stream, rte.ie forward slash arena. Sean, um, Rapture's Road, that word rapture is full of meaning, but I think there are two particular meanings that are important for this collection. Yeah, um, so I was thinking particularly about the end of the world, the apocalypse. Uh, there's a lot of anxiety about climate change and the loss of biodiversity in this collection. Uh, so that was the the first meaning of Raptors wrote. Um, but I also wanted to think about love and ecstasy and the other uh, ways we might conceive of rapture and knitting those two opposing uh, ideas together, grief and ecstasy, was kind of part of the challenge of the book. Um, and that runs a thread as we go through. How anxious a person are you in the midst of all these apocalyptic visions and big talks that are going on? 
quite anxious. Uh, there are days when I think, um, you know, I don't know how I'm supposed to function if the world is falling apart uh, like this. And then you have to kind of pull back that veil of um, surreality, I guess, to, to survive. You know, there's only so much reality you can take at any given time. Um, but poetry is one of the places where I think I can explore those ideas with a bit more complexity than I'm able to just in my thinking mind. Yeah, I wondered what, what poetry might, what function it might serve in the midst of all of that. And it is, you say it allows you to explore the themes with a little bit uh, less black and white, a yeah. little yeah. bit more complexity involved there. Does it give you any sort of um, repose or sense of uh, relief when you've written about it in this way? I think, you know, my first collection, Tongues of Fire, was primarily, I think, interested in beautiful things in the natural world. And I became... Well, it became clear to me as I was writing more poems over the past couple of years that I would have to deal with the loss of beautiful things as well. Um, but I think in a poem, you can hold space for attention and for, um, you know, drawing people's attention to to the beautiful things in the natural world that we're about to to lose or are currently using, losing. And um, I think being able to draw someone's attention to these things uh, through a poem, be able to uh, make something musical of it, uh, to be able to, um, you know, like I say, uh, pull people's attention to something that we might not have mm. for much longer um, allows me, uh, I think, to feel that the poem is not only making something beautiful, but it might also serve a purpose. Some kind of some mm. kind of function as well. Yeah. Will you read, will, lead us into End Ballad, if you wouldn't mind, and, and read that for us, page 52, if you're searching for it there in your collection. <laughs> yeah, um, so I the, the collection has a number of ballads in it. I was quite interested in these old musical forms of, of poetry, uh, not only because uh, they might work well read aloud, but they might also be memorised. Um, so this is End Ballad, and it's thinking about the loss of, of uh, biodiversity. I knew a house where the hawthorn barbed like a mace its blistering flowers, where the lapwings prickled electric song through the dim and the ending hours. I knew a dark night so full of sound as insects clicked the pane, and trees undid their weight of mist and let it fall as rain. I knew a night that grew and heaved with wings and inflorescence, and men passed through with poisons then, like preachers preaching lessons. A gaunt and haunted face I saw, like God, look from the landing down when I walked in guilt through the creaking door of my home in that quiet town. Sean Hewitt reading his poem End Ballad there from his new collection Rapture's Road and it really is noticeable uh, when you hear a contemporary poet in studio reading a, a poem out loud like that the sense of rhythm the sense of rhyme and the kind of old fashioned it's it's it had a, I was hearing Henry Longfellow in some ways <laughs> in my head that kind of old fashioned uh, old fashioned balladic st uh, style even though you had the good manners to just give us five verses as opposed to 125 <laughs> verses, which, you know, the average Longfellow ballad might have. Yeah, I mean, it's quite an unmodern style, but I was uh, reading a lot of people like Walter Delamere and Tennyson and the old Victorian mm. poets and thinking, 
you know, those were the first poets that I really fell in love with. And I can remember and kind of recite lines from their, their work in the back of my head still. And I find that much more difficult with a lot of modern poetry that I, I can't memorize it. Uh, so I wanted to kind of explore uh, those old forms and to, to kind of bring them up to date with, with new subject matter. And and writing in that, did, did you find yourself, I mean, there are other poems, I have to say, where the, the rhyme is perhaps more subtle and mm -hmm. where at times you, you kind of move the rhyme into the middle of the line or at a different spot in the line and it gives this sense of cascade almost. Did you find yourself kind of having to fight against the, in inverted commas, old-fashioned nature of it? Yeah, I think, you know, when I started writing the ballads, I had the problem that everything I wrote started to come out like a ballad. The, the, <laughs> the rhythm kind of got inside me. So I had to consciously stop. There are only two ballads in here. I thought people might get sick of them after a while. <laughs> um, and you're right, they kind of run through other poems that are longer or, or um, you know, play about with rhyme and, and music in other ways with repeated lines and things like that. You also mix prose uh, sections and very rhythmic and poetic sections mm. in the collection as well. What was mm. your idea there? My idea for the whole book was that it would be something that you could read from start to finish as a sort of journey that went through. Uh, and there are prose sections that connect some of the poems uh, almost as little narrative places where, um, you know, you might move from one scene to another uh, or it might allow you to kind of reflect outside of, of the music of a poem and to feel that music more keenly when it comes next. You know, it's a sort of pause uh, in the music. That aspect is there. And you, you've mentioned, you know, that you hope perhaps in the, in talking about um, particularly the loss of biodiversity, that that might have some sort of function or some sort of mm. power to actually make people sit up and think there's there's one poem within the collection as well, which Yes, there's prose within it and certainly in the opening section of it, but for the most part it's in verse, but it's almost reportage. Um, we didn't mean to kill Mr. Flynn. Yeah, so uh, this poem came from when I was uh, the poet in residence at the Irish Queer Archive, which is at the National Library of Ireland. That was in uh, 2022, I think, or 2021. And my job there was to, to look through the archives and to make 10 poems from it. Um, but I found that a very difficult job to try and encapsulate the archive. So instead I chose to uh, extract bits of language from media reporting or from court documents, uh, pamphlets, posters, those sorts of things, and kind of compose poems from that. Um, so uh, I have a, a two-part poem in the collection about uh, the killing of, of Declan Flynn uh, in 1982. Let's listen to the opening section of that. And lots of this is in inverted commas, it should be said, because you're quoting directly from, and you you, uh, you reference them at the bottom of the page, the specific magazine, the specific newspaper, the specific report that you're quoting from. There's a little bit of language just in, in one of the lines here. But let's hear the, the opening section of We Didn't Mean to Kill Mr. Flynn. Yeah, so the poem comes with uh, an epigraph, which I'll read to you. It's from the Irish Times, or was reported in the Irish Times on the 9th of March, 1983. We didn't mean to kill Mr. Flynn. I thought he was gay and that he was in the park to meet other gay people. We had been queer bashing during the summer. It was easy to get good sticks. There were plenty of trees with low branches. We were waiting in the shadows there, with cudgels, with hoods over our faces. Paddy shouted twice, get the bastard. We'd battered twenty steamers that summer, the team of us clearing the park of queers and pedos. Maybe that time we went too far, 
But with perverts, you have to do something physical. Castration, I don't know. So we ran, all of us, and chased him until he fell. And all I can think of now is the blood coming from the man's mouth. I turned him on his side so he wouldn't choke. He was heavy, I remember that. And then he went quiet, limp, and it sunk in that he was after dying. That's the opening section of the poem, We Didn't Mean to Kill Mr. Flynn, from Sean Hewitt's new collection, Rapture Road. What's, what's, there are many frightening aspects to what you read for us there, Sean, but one of the most frightening aspects of it, that a lot of it is, as I say, direct quotation. Yeah, I mean, it was impossible really to uh, paraphrase that case. I, I found as I read all of the documents, there were, um, you know, documents, uh, newspaper reports spanning a couple of years um, and the amount of information in there and the voices of the people concerned really struck me. Uh, so I decided instead to kind of dramatize that event uh, using the voices of the people who were charged, um, eyewitnesses, um, people uh, within the, the queer community in Dublin at the time. Uh, and to give all of those voices a spa- place to speak in the poem, and and that uh, the the 40th anniversary of that death was um, just two years ago. It was recently, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Was was this poem in and around that time that that particular aspect of the death and the memory of the death influenced the writing of the poem? Yeah, it did. Um, it was it was a, a topic of conversation uh, with a lot of people. I I know. Um, the, the photographer Brian Teeling had, had taken a, a photograph uh, of Declan Flynn uh, in, in Fairview Park, which was just uh, an empty bench. Mm. Uh, and there was also a documentary on, on RTE, uh, The Day I Can't Forget, uh, which was airing around that time. So he was definitely in the back of my mind. Yeah. And yeah. Part of a part of a fascinating collection, and thanks for coming in to speak to Thank us you. about it, Sean. That's Sean Hewitt speaking to us about Raptures Road, which is published by Jonathan Cape. Sean is appearing at the Classics Now Festival in Dublin on the third of February, taking part in the event conversations about love, and that's with poet Fiona Benson, chaired by Paula Shields, and full details on classicsnow.ie.